We are speaking with the one and only John Waite, uh, as we say here in Montreal. Bonjour, John. How are you? Bonjour. Oh, bonsoir. Bonsoir. Well, it's only it's only lunch here, so we're not at soir yet, but we're getting there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting there. That's great. Actually, my, my bass player, Tim, is just flying back today from Paris. Oh, wow. So there's definitely a French connection. Yeah, uh, there is. He, he, uh, he managed to, uh, his wife woke him up at two in the morning and she'd booked first class round trip tickets to Paris. And uh, what the uh, pandemic, uh, losing wow. he just jumped at it. So, uh, you know. Kind of now, a French thing going here today. Now you've never played here, have you? Yeah, we've been to uh, okay. Uh, we've been to Canada, okay, a few, a few times, uh, and passed through Canada, and we made the first Babies album in Toronto. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so uh, there is quite a lot going on with uh, with uh, the Canadian connection. Better. Yeah, we'd like to get back. I mean, we're we're going to go out again. I think in about two months in America. And at the end of that, we're going to Europe for 10 dates in Holland. And we're looking to do more outside Holland. But it would be wonderful to come to Canada. You know, I mean, I, I, it's very beautiful, you know. Yeah, you got you to gotta come in the summer and spend a couple of days and, and play a few shows at the same time. Uh, the first time we spoke, and I, I mentioned this before, and I always mention it, was for the Figure in a Landscape album 20 years ago. And Unbelievable. Yeah. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, you were on tour with Journey at the time. Yeah, Journey and Peter Frampton. Yes. Yeah. And um that was like a two month, seven weeks, I don't know, but it was a great tour. It was like big audiences and uh yeah, I saw it at the uh, Tweeter Center in Boston and I I remember wow. saying saying hi to you and stuff. Now the reason I bring it up is because uh, I was pitched the album by a publicist and I went, okay, you know, you know, I, I, I didn't know what you had been doing up at that point. And I heard it. And to this day, I still love that record. I just think it is so well done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was made in LA and the previous albums have been made in New York city. But uh, when I got the chance to record a record with the uh, gold circle films, Norm Waite signed me and David Crosby to a, uh, uh, to a record deal each and for some weird reason uh, three of the key musicians from New York that played on the previous two albums had moved to LA at the same time so I was able to have this sort of uh, triptych of three albums that were written really essentially in New York although but that's kind of you I appreciate that I mean you sometimes forget um, because you move on you know as soon as you finish you do. You, you put it behind you, you know, but it was just it was just listen, it was so exciting to me. Here I am, uh, you know, 20 years ago, just getting started. I'm talking to John Waite, which is very exciting because, you know, in the 80s and, and of course, the bad English and the missing you. It was a big part of my life. And then here I am in Boston backstage at a journey show to say hello to you. And it's just like, wow, look at me. So so, you know, it, it, it takes a special place in my in my memories that that That's whole funny thing so thank you for that and you signed the cd for me backstage which was also oh, great yeah. but we're here to talk about wooden heart acoustic anthology volume one two and three uh you put out volume one and two or volume one i think in 2014 and then 2017 i think for volume yeah. two yeah. Yeah. um talk to me about this this project because it's sort of been a, a long term you know it's been over five six seven years you, you've 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 been focused on doing this and i think they sound great 
talk to me about these wooden heart acoustic albums. Well, the first one was an, was EP. an EP. Right. Yeah. I, I tried to get the guitar player to stay in the studio, but he had places to go. And I was, after two days of work and mixing and singing, all I had was four songs, but they were beautiful songs. There was two Richard Thompson songs and two original songs. And I thought, you know, I'll just put it out. It's what I love, you know. And the age of doing the unplugged records had passed, which was important because I love acoustic music. But when it, when the sort of late 80s went forward, everybody and their dog was making acoustic records. And um, maybe that's been overtaken with country now because the acoustic guitar is very present in country for the most part. But uh, I felt I could get away with it. And uh, I didn't really care, actually. I've always gone my own way and done whatever it is I wanted to do. But I, I released the EP and we started doing unplugged shows, storyteller things that we could do uh, in between the bigger gigs. We just climb in the back of a van and drive 500 miles and play a small club and then drive 200 miles and play another small club, then maybe meet a big tour and play with a full band. And so it fit. And a few years ago, I went back for the sheer love of it, you know, and, and did the anthology, which was Isn't It Time, uh, is on the downtown, which is kind of a severe dark song, In God's Shadow, More. All that stuff is on that record. And then with, with lockdown and the pandemic, it was uh, a lifesaver. I'd, I'd spend eight months at home uh, drinking a great deal of red wine and just watching tea. I just became a vegetable, you know? Uh, and um, I decided it's time to go back to work. And, and I was in the studio trying to cut an electric record and I couldn't make sense of it. Every time the guitar player plugged in, I switched off. It was like I'd been there, I'd done it, I'd seen it, I'd written it. I'd probably laid the foundation stones with the babies to that kind of music. And uh, I just felt like I was cheating, you know? And I thought, well, I've just wasted $20,000 in the studio being there for a couple of weeks. And, uh, and then I, I kind of thought, well, come on, you know, do something. And I thought, well, okay, well, wooden heart, man. It's, I've, I've got a couple of days left in the studio and I, I phoned around, got the right players down, Shane Fontaine and uh, Luis Maldonado from Tren. And we could it, and it was a joy. It was just so fast. I mean, the thing about the unplugged records is that they happen overnight. I mean, they just happen. If you get your nose to the grindstone for a full day in the studio, you're generally mixing the next day. You know, it's like Dylan or something. Is it is? There's no real second takes. If something's not working, you just stop. You know? Really. Well, okay, yeah. so, so, so let me talk about that for a second, because you, you came through the 80s where everything was about the production. There was, you know, the, yeah. the Mutt Langs and the Bob Rocks and all those people came yeah. through and there was production, production, production. Yeah, I, I hated it. I, I, all my favorite bands from the 70s forward, uh, like Free, it was just a mic in the room and there was some reverb if you could handle it, you know, but that spoke to me. When I'm producing, I don't produce with effects and stuff. I record the band's performance with me singing. And if somebody drops a note, you can always put it back in. But I'm not interested in taking it all apart. I think that's pretty soulless. And I had to go through right. that in, with the producers that I worked with early. Right. But it, it made me bitter about that. I really, right. when I see that coming, I just say no. 
And and by the way, no fault of their own. I mean, the producers were hired to to come up with these slick records, and and they were just doing, I guess, what the record companies wanted in a sense. Yeah, but that's the point. You know, you think you're going to work with a producer that's got uh, it's that's some sort of simpatico, you know, and uh, but they work for the company. Yep. If, if the company says we need singles, man, uh, which they always do, then you're under a lot of pressure to try and have a top five hit. And then when you stand back, that's the music business. Without the top five hit, you're not going to sell any records. So it's like a chain, you know? And as I'm very lucky that I've got a reputation and a career and a name. So basically now I can do absolutely anything I want. And I have done for the last 20 years, 25. Since Bad English, I've just simply, you know, I don't really take any prisoners. I don't really compromise on anything. I, I can't be bothered. No. So, so let me just uh, quickly talk about that then in terms of putting together the songs and the music, like we said, when you have a producer, you screw it up, they do 20 takes, or if you're Mutt Lang, they do a hundred takes. Now, do you, do you just go capture the soul and the essence of yeah. the song? And if there's a, 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 a small mistake, you just go, hell, it's character, all, leave it. That's, but that's the same with the vocal. When I'm doing a vocal, the first vocal is always the best because you're stepping off a diving board. You're trying to get the air and your, your head in the exact right position to get the best out of the mic and work the mic. But you're at sea. You don't really know what you're doing. And for some strange reason, that uh, vulnerability or, or that commitment to getting from bar one to bar 80, is uh, that's where it lives. That's the magic. And if somebody plays a bum note, I usually keep it in. I mean, you listen to Dylan records. And even Blood on the Tracks, which is arguably his most accessible record, you know, you can hear the edit points. You know, you can hear him, his cufflink or his, his buttons on the guitar. I mean, I don't go about it to try and do that. But uh, when you're singing, you really are kind of not sleepwalking, but your subconscious is given full rain. You're like liquid paint. You're like liquid sound. And... To, to go back in and correct stuff is just absurd because, you know, I mean, Bonnie Raitt does that. Bonnie Raitt will not punch into a track. If she fucks up the vocal, she goes right back to the top and starts again. And, I mean, that is the... I came up in an age, the 70s and the late 60s, where I went to the local university dances, you know, and the Who were playing, Free were playing, Family... I mean, just insane. Wings actually came one time. Wow. And you would go and see these bands. And they'd, they'd come on slightly drunk or something because they're all like hardworking lads. And they'd come out stoned or whatever, smoking a lot of pot backstage. And they'd do a Ray Charles song, second, on the drop of a hat because it just felt like we're going to play Ray Charles. And that is my kind of, um, that's the ethos, man. That's, the, that's, that's yeah. it. That's me. the essence that, of it. Absolutely. And you get this American, uh, uh, like, uh, it's like a horse race. Everybody's trying to win and do the next guy down and climb over him and steal this idea and fuck that person. And it's, in the end, it's just like, I came here for music, and if I sell five copies, that's great. And if it sells 500, that's even better. 5,000, now we're talking. If we get up to, like, 80,000 sales... It's a major thing these days. So you might as well just be true. You know, I mean, there's no point in, um, you know, you can sell out or you don't. 
Yeah. Listen, I, I agree. And, and I think we've sort of lost part of the soul or the essence of music. You go back to the early Sabbath and the early Zeppelin, and, and these albums were made in a day, in a week, yeah. in a month. Yeah. And now you hear, oh, uh, our album is going to come out in 2024. We've started writing now. And you're like, what, three years? What? <laughs> the fact that even the fact that even said to you was starting writing now, like, you know, God just went to the bathroom. I mean, it's just like, you know, these guys used to climb in the back of a van and sit on the amps for seats with one roadie. And, you know, somebody pass a joint around and then they drive down the M1 back to London or whatever. And all they talked about was music. Yeah. They weren't talking in terms of demographic or sales or it was just what are they going to write about next? And, and did you hear the Beatles new record or whatever? It would have, you know, bang, bang, bang. But it was so genuine. It was so authentic that you you get, I mean, it's like Andy Warhol, Coca-Cola, Marilyn Monroe. It's like this gigantic thing that's America and it's it's covered the world with its with its politics. But, you know, it isn't all money. And the great joys of life no. are not necessarily about owning, you know, a million dollars is great, but you get taxed. You get taxed. I, I, have... I don't know what that means, but, you know, <laughs> really, you know, ah, a million dollars. And yes, sir, but you're paying 50% tax. Oh, yeah, $500,000. You know, it's like, it's like, it's a game, you know. <laughs> let me let me ask you this did you at any point get disillusioned with the record the record business oh, yeah. and the music yeah because uh, when you're in, the, in a band like bad english and they're going we need a single we need mtv mtv it's not what you're about it's well, no, it, it, it must have okay. driven you crazy we could we could we, we fought tooth and nail through the first album but we managed to get a balance a, a compromise where i could be like out there kind of dark with the lyrics and everything and the melodies and the other guys threw this big thing behind it which was like the babies really but epic were fabulous as a record label there's people that worked there that were just god's gift to uh to talent you know we were we were herded back in the studio kind of way too soon we'd been on the road for a year we'd taken five months making the first record back to god going to the bathroom there but uh I was, I just went back to New York to my house and I just was in the garden. I was drinking wine and looking at the sunset and I was engaged and it was just a beautiful thing. I I really worked and I'd had enough. I wanted to take like five months off, but the pressure was enormous to get back in the ring because as it was put to me, if you don't make an album now, you can't tour in summer. And my thinking is, of course we can tour in summer. We've just had, Four, four top 20 singles and a number one hit. We can tour anytime we want, but the business can't exist. A hamster you know? wheel. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like the lizard eating his tail. It's like, Jesus Christ, you know, I need to go home and sleep. But uh, I understood after about seven weeks of um, the phone ringing off the hook and I was living in the country. I thought, oh God, all right. And I went. And it was a mistake, really, because it ended kind of badly. But um, people become true to type. You know, it's like, got to be a hit, got to be a hit. But oh, it, It's got to be annoying. You know, I, 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 I tell this story often, but I had this conversation with uh, Doug Feger of the Knack years ago. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about my Sharona, obviously. And he says, Mitch, you don't understand. It's been a golden albatross around my yeah. neck. And I go, yeah. well, well, what do you mean? 
He goes, listen, in the back, you can say, I got the pool. I got the car. I got the house. I, I don't have to work another day in my life. However, I can't make any new music because anytime I bring it to the record company, they go, we don't hear my Sharona. We don't hear yeah. another hit. <laughs> yeah. But I knew that, though. Missing You was written at the 11th hour. And uh, I knew we hadn't got a single. I was, I was, you know, cognizant of the game. I knew what we needed. And I was on fire as a writer. But I came in with Missing You when they were mixing the record. And I knew, you know, it was number one. And everybody in the room knew. And the record company knew. And everybody was like, thank God for that. But I went and I wrote it like with my nose up against the glass. I just knew we had to have it. And I, when it came time for the second record, I didn't even think twice about writing a, a single. The next album, Mask of Smiles, is almost a country record with rock tracks in it. I mean, I, it was Welcome to Paradise, Just Like Lovers, Every Step of the Way. There were some really gorgeous songs. Really, there was, it was a good album. But it wasn't written to be a hit because I knew one of two things. I'd be accused of trying to repeat Missing You, which is suicide. And, um, you know, I, 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 I knew I couldn't do it. it. It's like putting lightning in a bottle. When you write something like you're talking about My Sharona or Missing You, it's like fast car, you know, it's that wonderful song. And, and uh, you don't write another fast car. It's just somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't win. I mean, you're really damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because if you, yeah. if you write another missing you, you're contrived and you're just copying yourself. And if yeah, you don't write it, they go, oh, we only had one song in him. <laughs> yeah, but worse than that, worse than that, if you do write a number one song, um, then you're expected to write a third one and a fourth. That and hamster then, wheel. Yeah. And <laughs> somebody once told me in Nashville, uh, a really great songwriter, uh, he said to me that <clears throat> uh, when he works for a film company and he's doing a soundtrack, he winds up with his head on the keyboards <laughs> at like two in the morning with a bottle of scotch. You know, it's like you cannot win. And, and it, everything's subjective. There were people that, heard Missing You at the label that didn't hear it for, for about a week. And I just kept ringing up and saying, send me a check. I need five grand. We're going back in. And it's, and they put me on the Concord and stuff to go get my picture taken, David Bailey and all that in London. They spent a lot of money. And it was like, come on, John, we're, we're almost going bust. But I had this song. So I kind of knew, and it is a game. If you take it too seriously, you will wind up with your head on the piano with a bottle of scotch. Of course. And, and if you write four or five hit singles in a row, and then the sixth one isn't, they go, oh, he can't write singles anymore. He's, he's out of, and you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, I just wrote four. Yeah. Like, but, but, yeah, but then they drop you. You know, yeah. you know it's like, yeah. well, he's done. You know, he's the but. old hit maker. Let me ask you, <laughs> let me get off of that for a second. Um, you worked with Ron Nevison with the babies. Yeah. And Ron, of course, has, touched a lot of my favorite albums from Thin Lizzy to UFO, you know, Strangers in the Night and the whole thing. When you chose to work with him, was there some kind of like, hey, we like what he's done with UFO. We like what he's done with Thin Lizzy. We want to be that kind of band. Or, or did the record company say, hey, here's Ron. Have, how did that come about? Was it, were you looking for a sound? Well, the babies, the album two and three mm -hmm. was produced by Ron Nevison. Yeah. And we were going to use Richie Zito 
who'd produced the first bad English record. Oh, wow. But, but he was taking care of some personal stuff and couldn't make it. And I turned around to the band and said, Ron Nevison might be able to do this, you know. Ron is a very difficult personality. Very, very difficult. And uh, I should have really thought it through a bit more, but um, maybe I was trying to destroy the band. But um, he came in and we were fine for like a week and then it went to hell. It was, it was my worst nightmare. And uh, that's all I can really say about it. But it was my decision. Okay. And I, and I was wrong. Okay. Because, I, I mean, you just look at the track record of Lights Out and stuff. You just go, yeah, I, I want that on my I want that on my record. That's... Well, if you listen to The Babies, isn't it? Time and every time I think of you and all the really big songs The Babies had, that was the same. We were there first. Yeah. We didn't... I, didn't, I can't honestly say I've listened to an, a UFO record, but I know that Ron has been instrumental in, in making some major records. But when I was working with Ron... It was me and Ron at two in the morning with a bottle of whiskey and the piano. You know, we were really uh, equals in the studio. He was difficult, but he had a lot of respect for me. And uh, we forged. I wouldn't take any shit. That was what was going on. And he tries to use that as a kind of device to get his own way. I just wouldn't have it. Right. And, and, you know, that 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 seemed to be how producers back in the day worked, though. They they oh, were man, they were the boss. It's fucking bullshit. It's <laughs> like, you know, Ron, actually, on, uh, on one track, I'd written this song called World in a Bottle, and the, there was an instrumental passage at the end for strings and a full orchestra, and it was in a weird time signature, right? And Ron didn't tell me he was going to the session. I'd written the music. And he snuck off to this soundstage in Hollywood with his conductor. It was like a Walt Disney Fantasia thing. It was like a fucking, just like you know, a full orchestra. And they couldn't do it. The, 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 the conductor didn't understand it. So he sheepishly rang me up. And he said, you know, I'm at the studio. And I said, what's going on? And he tried to do it all by himself like he's a clever boy, you know. And he couldn't fucking do it. So I had to go over there and sit down with the conductor and talk about the parts and where the downbeat was. And, you know, I heard it and it was right. And then I left. But that's, you know, when you say somebody has to be the boss, the boss is the guy that writes the songs. And, and the producer is the conduit that takes it from the, the artist out into the world, not the other way around. I can't say that. If I could say that in capital letters, that's the way it fucking is. And a lot of people come in and destroy records trying to throw the weight around. And when you're young, you're looking at them thinking, really? You know, but me and Ron almost came to blows. You know, I wasn't backing down, but he would do things like that. And it was like, what the fuck are you doing? We're the babies. We're great. But some people have got this thing. It was bullshit. I still find it hard to... You know, consider him a. I mean, I I wash my hands of it. You know. Okay. Well, I, well, I didn't mean to uh, to get everything. <laughs> to well, get no, it do, you do you understand though? It it is. Yeah. <clears throat> with it's like you know who knows better than the singer who wrote the song. What the vision is. No, but if you're working with somebody, um, you know, uh, like Jeff Lynn or Chris Thomas, uh, the really great producers, you know. 
they're part of the band and they're, they're talking to you and, and moving with you through this writing process and it becomes one. But if some idiot comes in and saying, right, I'm the boss, you know, it's like, fuck off. Yeah, yeah I, I, fuck I, off. Fuck I can, off. I can see how that can uh, that can be somewhat frustrating because, I mean, but it should stops, be a team. It stops the work. It stops the work. Right. You're putting walls where there shouldn't be walls. And if your ego is that fucking inflated, then you shouldn't be in that seat as a producer. You're just going to wreck the record. Uh, and by the way, just uh, since we're we're on the uh, those early albums, uh, every time I think of you, I have a very specific memory. I was on vacation in Florida, and it came on in a record store in the mall, and I was like, "What? What is this?" And 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 I'm, that's that's where I picked it up. I just went, "Oh, I need this. This is good." Oh, that's great! <laughs> and that's I'll never great. forget this. I'll never forget that vacation. And uh, in the same moment i also heard um refugee by uh, tom petty and i went yeah oh. i went who are these people i don't hear yeah. these in montreal i gotta buy this stuff there was like three bands in la yeah. that were that were the same age that were uh that were dangerous you know and it was the babies cheap trick and tom petty and we all kind of knew each other but we were all going out on tour at the same time and having the same kind of success obviously the babies fell away pretty quickly. Yep. But for a while there, in the mid the late seventies, that's that was LA. Uh, imagine that as a triple bill going out back then. Holy crap! Boy, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. Tom Petty, Cheap Trick, and John Waite back in, or the babies back in seventy nine, eighty. Man, that would have been. We yeah, didn't Tom, do we, we didn't do package Cheap deals Cheap back Trick then. And Tom, uh, the, the just really high end musicians that had a message. Yep. I think I think the loss of Tom still affects uh generally uh how we look at the music that we listen to. You know, he really was a gifted man. Before uh before we wrap up and 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 get a few more questions on Wooden Heart in here, I have to do the Kiss Geek thing just for a second. Sure. Uh on the No Break album, you worked with three people that were involved directly or indirectly with Kiss. You had Adam Mitchell, who wrote a lot of their songs. You had Jean Beauvoir, who played on a secretly on a couple of albums and wrote some songs. And of course, you had Vinnie Vincent or Vinnie Cusano. Yeah. Um, that song "Tears" yeah. is just is just. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, Vinnie yeah. and, and Adam together, deadly combination. Yeah, it was great. We we cut the record before missing you. And the A&R guy came in and said, listen, guys, we need a single. Just give us, you know, and he, and he said, this is a great song. And it was tears. And me and Gary Myrick looks at each other like he's a guitar player. Like, what can we do to this? And uh, we cut it as a three-piece band very hard. And at the end, I put that, cry me a river tonight. Put that in like a soul thing. Uh, but it's a wonderful song. It's one of my favorite songs to sing. It yeah. really is. I mean, um, there's this great line in the song. It says... Um, you've got my number in your hands. <laughs> a killer on the street, you've got my number in your hands. And every time I'm on stage and I sing it, I, I have to stop myself from laughing. Yeah. But it's a, great, it's a great melody. It's a singer's song. Yeah. You know, Vincent, man, he's a very, very clever songwriter. He really is. I mean, we've heard other stories about how he used to be in a band, but as a songwriter number one i mean he's, well, he's... I think that, that maybe is his value in in kiss you know it's like uh they were always shrewd about having themselves having great writers in the band you know i mean they had the image of gene and paul and all that 
yeah. who wrote great songs and all that stuff. But they always had somebody in the band that was like also a weapon, a secret weapon that could write, you know? And I guess Finney was that. Yeah, and anyway, I just got to get that that kiss thing in there. So now with the anthology, the one, two, three, is that yeah. a way to sort of put a, a, a you know a bow tie or a tie or a, whatever a ribbon on the box and say that's it, I'm done, and the next stage is coming up? Or will there be more acoustics? I really love what you're doing. I think it's a singer songwriter. It's beautiful. It's it's I don't know. It's just, it's just beautiful. <laughs> well, I, I I still get turned on playing on stage the electric stuff with the drums and the bass and the guitar and the, and i sing full out and we you know we finish with whole lot of love you know I mean, it's like it's a joy to be out there singing rock but when i'm in the studio nowadays i don't know what to do if it isn't acoustic it almost feels like the age i am where i've come from the road behind me uh the wreckage and the victories and the the love and the heartlessness and the whole thing you know it seems appropriate to be playing the acoustic guitar you know i got this guitar from Merton. look at this yeah oh look at this oh yeah man this is like this is the Merton 75th anniversary oh wow he just sent me it sent oh, me wow. it like uh, a couple of days ago for free you know but there you go that's Merton right there look. that's perfect but, uh, we're going to write a song right now. No. Yeah, no, but, you know, it's it's just, it speaks to me. And, and like, you know, you're talking about Dylan and and the really incredible string band. And just maybe even Van Morrison, even though he comes from a, a place that is jazzy and electric. But there's something Celtic that I've had since I was a kid. I was raised on that, you know, Celtic music and cowboy music. It speaks very strongly to me coming from the northwest of England. You can hear it in the Beatles with Please Please Me, McCartney's Harmonies, and Love Me Do. The early stuff, McCartney will always go to this kind of drone. And it, that's the Celtic thing, it's got Irish in it. So have I. But I recognize that and I move towards it uh, when it's on the acoustic. And like I said, when I was in the studio, I went in to record an electric record. And I, I dropped 20 grand fucking around for three weeks on two songs. And I could not, I could not believe in it. I just hmm. could every time the guitar come in, I, it was like, fuck man, I did this 40 years ago. What am I doing? Some bands glom onto a, like a style and a thing and they rewrite the same song fast and slow till the end of their careers, you know? And, and, and I went to art school and for about six months, I was drawing, I was trying to illustrate a book called Wurzel Gummidge about um, a scarecrow. And I took all different mediums, all different pen and ink, paint, montage, you know, collage. And uh, the, the, the professor came to me and he said, if you keep painting the same thing, John, you're going to wind up being only able to paint that. You should always move on. And, uh, I use that in music. Like when the babies finished, I didn't try and sound like the babies, like it was all my own work. I went to New York City and I tried to reinvent the band with uh, Ivan Kroll from Patti Smith, you know? And then there was a the No Breaks record, which was a hellfire, avant-garde, left of field, unorthodox record with a hit single in it. 
But wherever I go and whatever I do, I want to be a step ahead of where I was yesterday. And if I can't do that, I'll just go back to painting. I really will. And by the way, that that's that's what I remember from our interview for Figuring a Landscape. You had said that because it wasn't a bad English part two. It wasn't a baby's part two. You said, no, I'm not I'm not doing a part two. I'm I'm just gonna be doing John. And I've always respected that. I, I I've always enjoyed the fact that you're moving forward and you're not just gonna say steeped in 1984 and repeat it oh, like fuck. Groundhog Day, you know. Yeah, I know, but it's um it's expected of you at a certain point. You wouldn't believe the amount of gigs I get offered, you know, to get up with a bunch of people who have never done things since and, you know, be top on the bill or whatever and come out and sing a few 80s. I just can't do it. But when we go out and play live, we play Tears and we play Missing You. And uh, we also play Change. And and then we get on with what we came to do, you know, and it's and it's a very loose, open set. We do Dylan songs. We stop and do an acoustic song like like Bluebird Cafe or Downtown, which is probably my chef d'oeuvre, as my dad used to call it. Um, but the lyrical thing, the connection, the spiritual gesture of trying to connect and open a door to yourself and to other people like a mirror, that's that's art. And everything else is short for Arthur. <laughs> That's funny. By the way, you, you also gave me a memorable quote back then. Uh, you were talking about music critics and you said music critics shouldn't comment on my music because most of them can't play an instrument. And I was like, yeah, all right, I can get that. <laughs> yeah. But the only thing worse than that is a guy that used to play bass when he was in college. It's like the A&R guy. You know, you walk in and he's wearing some like dirty old T-shirt. He's got a goatee and shit. And he thinks he's, you're his soul brother because he played bass 50 years ago. Dude, in college, know. I was a bass player. You should have seen <laughs> yeah, me. I've actually had that. I've had that done to me. Uh, but but like um, there's, a documentary, there's a documentary coming out um, early next year on me. It's a full budget documentary. And a lot of people were interviewed for it. And Gary Gersh, who was the, uh, the A&R guy at EMI, he was like, he, he transported me from being like almost defeated at Chrysalis Records, which was a complete fucking nightmare, to being on a label that really wanted me to do well and was sympathetic and empathetic and showed up at the studio and just sat there and went like, yeah, or no, or could you try this? But he was the best A&R guy I ever worked with. And I want to I want to give him a shout out because he really was for all my anger at the record business and the idiots that kind of control it. This occasionally one of them. So, you know, you got to, <laughs> you know, got to say thank you. You know, I, I was just uh, I, when you said the the idiots that control it, I, I was thinking of some of the gatekeepers sometimes when oh. you try to get an interview done. And it's just like, oh, no. you And it's just like, oh, just let me fucking talk to them. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's. It's smoke and mirrors. Yeah. It, and, and anyway, but listen, yeah, uh, johnwaitworldwide.com is where you can get the album. and uh, Or you can also get it on uh, Spotify and Apple Music and all that but stuff. It, but if it'll you, be in the shops. It'll be in Target in about a month, too. It's going to get a... It'll be in the shops. But thanks for that. Yeah, you can get a signed copy sent yeah. off right away if you would like to enjoy the acoustic side of my life. 
Well, I am. Uh, I have the other ones. I, I haven't picked this one up, but I'm actually going to go do that. Look, I'm clicking on it right now. Now it says, oh, men T-shirts, too. I might have to get one of those U.S. Oh. Or, or U.S. orders only. Well, we'll we'll have it. We'll call, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send there. you one. I'll send you one. <laughs> send me your address, Mitch. Send, <laughs> send me your address. And I'll get you one off in the mail today. Yeah, not, but I'll, I'm going to go pay for the CD. I, I am I very. I love you, man. I love you. I believe that you have to support the artist. I just do. Um, you know, and and I, I buy was, all my music. Yeah, I do too. And yeah. uh, when I was working with Alison Krauss in Nashville, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she would ring up because we became great friends. And she would ring up and, and uh, ask for tickets to maybe Dolly Parton was doing a small show or something or there was something going at the station in some really hip thing with some really authentic and she would never be asked to be put on the guest list because you know even it's a business and people are trying to pay the roadies and the gear rental and the gasoline and the, but she would never ask to be put on the guest list she would always insist on buying the tickets and i thought that was one of the most wonderful things you know really wonderful it's just like a spade is a spade You've gone completely off my radar. Hang on. Are you there? No, yeah, sorry. I, I, I ah. hit mute because I was clicking buttons, but uh, <laughs> I just paid 40 US dollars to New Break Tour Inc. You see, as you can see, you could see the colors on my face changing. It's because I was going through the site over to PayPal and I just oh. ordered. Mitch, that's, that's very decent of you. I would have sent you one. No, yeah, but I'll take the T-shirt. But I'm gonna take the. Uh, I'm gonna pay okay. for the. I'm I'll gonna pay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pay for the. Uh, for the. And I just paid for it. Look at that. Look at that order. Let's see. Does it say? Uh, does it give me an order number? It says Merchant Details No Break Tour Inc. There you go. It's paid. Hey, dig this. Done. I just sold this this morning. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, it's. Uh, can you see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on canvas. It's. Uh, but it's gorgeous. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's my version of religion. It's, uh, it, these are ventriloquist dummies and, and sort of cartoon figures. And that's a cartoon ventriloquist Christ uh, offering redemption or save, being saved. That's a savior. But I've I, I, I been, been selling works for years now, but that just went today. i got to go down to UPS and send it out but i mean that's what i'm saying about you know if i can't bring something new every time i go in i'm gonna go straight back to that and um you know just paint well while you're down at ups you can send off my uh newly purchased autograph wooden heart anthology volume one two and three cd there you go yeah. uh Toujours un plaisir, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you for the last uh, 20 years. We've done a bunch of interviews over the years. Always great. Thank you, Mitch. Thank and the, you. the music has always been there. You, you, it's, it's, it's just, you know, hey, just keep it going. And uh, well, It's my pleasure. You know, I believe me when I say it's my pleasure. It's my life. Yeah. I, you know, and I, it's what I do. And, and I, thanks. Thanks for... Uh, backing me up yeah and listen you've been part of my life too i mean when you hear every time i look at you and missing you and i can think of the mall i can think of high school i can think of after high school with when i see you there are mo and then of course figuring a landscape at the journey show and 
they're, they're, you, you've, you've, you've affected me. And they're, well, they're very you. special memories. Well, that, that, you know, I couldn't have put it better myself if, if I had affected anybody. You know, the greatest thing in life, somebody asked me the other day, said, what is it that, that makes your life special? And I said, it's being understood. And I think when, you, when somebody looks you in the eyes at a show or in the audience or buys your music, you feel listened to, heard, you know? And there's something that, that transpires between the other person and yourself, like you, in all this chaos of life, this roller coaster, you know, for a split second, two people agree on something, you know, and it's, it's, it's uh, not to be alone, you know, to have your voice heard in, in all this chaos of life is the most wonderful thing. And I've had that in my lifetime. And uh, it, it, it wasn't wasted on me, you know. Uh, folks, head over to uh, johnwaitworldwide.com, johnwaitworldwide.com. You can get Wooden Heart Anthology Volume 1, 2, 3 autographed or not autographed. There's also T-shirts and other stuff. Do support your artist. And on that, uh, merci beaucoup. Thank you. Merci. Bonsoir. Have a good day. Bonsoir. Cheers. There you go. That was perfect. <laughs>